Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Upchurch, and we are discussing traditionalism. So the last time we dealt with traditionalism was in our conversation with Benjamin Teitelbaum. That was very much framed around traditionalism and its sort of reach into modern politics, as told through the lens of Steve Bannon, Alexander Dugan, and Olavo in Brazil. What we're doing today is we're digging deeper into the philosophy of traditionalism. So why do this? So it is, it is something that has come up over and over again, the themes, the ideas, you know, it is easy to sort of dismiss Dugan and Bannon as kind of grifters or kind of weirdos, but you can't, you can't argue with the influence they've had or their approximation to power. And it is worthwhile to sort of dig into this philosophy and, and think about it, you know, as, as we go on. So please, with that, please welcome my guest, Miss Upchurch. How's it going? Hello. So I want to start off with, this might be treading ground, but I want to kind of start off with two questions. One is, what do you see as traditionalism or what is traditionalism? That's traditionalism with a capital T. And then what are some of the key thinkers and writers in this sort of, that are proponents of this philosophy? Okay, so I think the best way to do this is to uh, start with the historical origins of traditionalism and then move on to like the doctrines. So traditionalism with a capital T is a new-ish religious movement that got its start in France in the 1920s with the publication of The Crisis of the Modern World by René Guénon, who was a a scholar of religions and mythology. And he started out as uh, sort of an up-and-coming, the member of an up-and-coming group of European scholars who were starting to study Hinduism in a serious way. But unlike the others who tended to take kind of an anthropological or historical approach to it, he was more of a spiritual seeker than a sort of traditional scholar. So his first book was the General Introduction to the Study of Hindu Doctrines, which I will not attempt to say in French. And at the time, a number of other... Uh, Indologists criticized him and that book because it sort of, for one thing, it treated Vedanta as like the only valid sort of Hindu current, which is a strange choice. Vedanta is one of many like schools of Hindu philosophy. And then one critic, Sylvain Levy, said of this book that Ganon was quite ready to believe in a mystical transmission of a primal truth that appeared to humanity in the first ages of the world. And that approach to Hinduism in this first work kind of prefigured like Ganon's subsequent development of traditionalism. And sort of the there were sort of several, there was a sort of a big stew of 
occultist movements, interest in Eastern religions, sort of quasi-mystical, like psychological research going on in the late 19th and early 20th century. And that traditionalism was one of the products of that, of that milieu. But two things were like particularly influential on Guénon. One of them, so the, the first, so chronologically, the first of these ideas was the, the perennial philosophy. So a, this was uh, sort of developed by a Italian Renaissance scholar of like the classical Greek, of like classical Greek philosophy. Like he was kind of a Catholic, kind of a Neoplatonist. He would have said those were the same thing, which is debatable. But so Marsilio Ficino in 1540 writes this book arguing that like Plato's arguments support Roman Catholicism because they have the same ultimate source, which he calls that the perennial philosophy. And this idea kind of hung around at the beginning of the 17th century for a little bit, but people kind of lost interest in it in probably the mid 1600s. But there was there was some sort of residual interest in like amongst Freemasons actually in this idea because Freemasons often draw pretty heavily on Plato. At least in the in the 18th and 19th centuries, they were very interested in like the Platonic doctrine of the forms and stuff like that. So perennial the perennial philosophy is out of fashion for about 200 years but it's still there in the water and then in 1875 so you know british india is going on the transcendentalist movement is going on in the u.s the vedas the these like sacred hindu texts have just been translated into english and this guy named Henry Alcott found something called, that you've definitely heard of called the Theosophical Society to find the primeval source of all religion. And he thinks that they will find this in the Corpus Hermeticum and in the Vedas. So the Corpus Hermeticum is this, it's hard to describe. It's kind of a Gnostic text and kind of an early magical manual at the time, they believed, like scholars thought that the Corpus Hermeticum dated to like some somewhere before 500 BC. This was, this is not, not true. So it was actually assembled at some point from a variety of sources in the third century AD. So it draws a lot on like, it has a lot of influences from the sort of what we would now consider like non like non orthodox Christian philosophy that sort of became Gnosticism, and then Platonism, some sort of ancient Egyptian religion. It's all kind of mixed up together in the Corpus Hermeticum. But Ficino, the the Renaissance Plato scholar, believed that the Corpus Hermeticum was like one of the first instance of like a written record of the perennial philosophies. So. And then the the Vedas have been newly translated and 
there's a lot of interest in that. So Alcott wants to look in both of those places. The problem is that Alcott's secretary is Helena Blavatsky. And uh, Helena Blavatsky kind of hijacks theosophy. And that's a podcast in its own right, so I'm not going to get into that in detail. But she is like a uh, plagiarist and like a fraudulent, like a fraudulent spiritualist, right? So she'll do like, she'll sort of use elaborate machinery to create illusions of like spirit visitations and whatnot. And she writes these two books, Isis Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine, which are like heavily plagiarized from various like scholarly texts on Hinduism, but also from Bulwer Lytton's novels. And she attributes these to like the visitation of spirits, right? And at the time, so they were like other scholars at the time sort of successfully demonstrated that Blavatsky was a fraud. And sort of theosophy was kind of like relegated to the wacky fringes, kind of like the way that we would think of like Scientology or something. But the ideas, like the core ideas of, of theosophy, which was the like the renewed interest in the perennial philosophy, the idea that the perennial philosophy survives more accurately in Vedanta Hinduism and probably in Tibet as well. All of that comes from theosophy because Marsilio Ficino knew nothing about Eastern religion at all. So, Guénon is sort of, he is exposed to this whole milieu and he, he was an enemy of theosophy because he thought that theosophy was like a distortion of the perennial philosophy, but he was still in search of it. And he went through a number of different, he went through a number of different phases before he eventually settled on, for his personal religious practice on Sufism, but we'll get to that in a bit. So René Guénon is sort of the founder of traditionalism and he's, he's the, originator of sort of the basic philosophical structure that I'll go through in a minute. He worked pretty closely with this guy, Ananda Kumara Swami, who was, so he was a Hindu. He moved to India from, he moved from India to the U.S. in the late 19th century. And he was, so he was a, he was a perennialist or a traditionalist. Sometimes at that point they were using those words interchangeably. And like the, I guess like the outer garment that he dressed that up in was his native like Vedanta Hinduism. There, and then the other two are Frithjof Schuon, who was German and he dressed his traditionalism in Sufi Islam. And we're not going to talk about him that much because he's, his his Sufi order, the Mariamiya, is still around, but it has, to my knowledge, little to do with political traditionalism. But he's fascinating in his own right. He's a podcast unto himself as well. 
And then we're gonna, I'm gonna spend the most time talking about Julius Evola, who was Italian, and he was the developer of political traditionalism, what he sometimes referred to as super fascism. He's a fun guy. So, okay. So that's the, the historical origins. So the, the basic claim, like the basic religious claim of traditionalism is that initiatic mystery religions are the proper expression of human spirituality and are the only vehicle through which the perennial philosophy is transmitted. So when I say initiatic mystery religions, you're like, Upchurch, what are you talking about? So a mystery religion is a religion that has an outer doctrine and an inner doctrine. So it's a, it, it has an exoteric dimension and an esoteric dimension. And sort of lay people or the less spiritually advanced may practice the, ex the exoteric form of the religion, but to access the esoteric inner doctrines, you have to go through a religious initiation. Now, the way Ganon originally meant this, he meant initiation in an existing orthodox religious tradition. But, so one of the things that gets kind of tricky when you're talking about traditionalists is that the existing orthodox religious tradition is actually not the important thing to them. It's the initiation that's important. So, for instance, Ganon, in his personal progression, he actually starts out in theosophy which was initiatic in that way, but decides that this is a bunch of nonsense. He spent some time in a neo-gnostic order, which was kind of, which that's again, fascinating in its own right, because at that point, like up until the discovery of the non Hamadi gospels, we actually knew very little about what Gnostics believed. So this purported like Gnostic tradition was sort of derived from the beliefs of the Cathars, which some people think were some kind of surviving Gnostic tradition, who knows. So he spends some time as a neo-Gnostic. And then he spends some time as a neo-Templar. So not really Catholic because again, the many of the, the people in, these, in this occult milieu believe that the Templars were also Gnostics of some sort. Um, so he goes through all of those and he finds them all sort of bogus in one form or another and eventually settles on Sufi Islam, which has the same sort of mention where the teacher, like it requires initiation by a teacher, but it's also a living religious tradition. Now, not all traditionalists require that the initiation be in, you know, Sufi Islam, various Hindu or Buddhist traditions, or some of them will accept Kabbalah, but most of them think that the Abrahamic religions are purely exoteric. So they don't have a hidden, a hidden doctrine, so they're not really like true religions. 
This is not the, necessarily the case for more modern traditionalists. So Julius Ebola, who we'll get to in a lot more detail later, but his view of initiation is somewhat different because, again, they believe that the perennial philosophy is sort of fragmented across existing religions. So Ebola says, okay, well, yeah, it's not a true religion unless there's initiation, but like initiation into what? No currently existing religion is an accurate representation of the perennial philosophy. <laughs> so what do we do, right? Get back to that later. But again, so they believe that this perennial philosophy is fragmented across existing religions. And that this is that, that sort of this state of affairs has developed over time. So this is where we get to the other two key doctrines of traditionalism. And these these are discussed much more thoroughly in the Titlebaum interview, which you should absolutely listen to because it's fantastic. So I'm not gonna go into as much detail about this because Titlebaum does a fantastic job on it. But the so the other two key features of traditionalist doctrine are times the cyclical time and a caste society. And well, Evola combines, and because we're going to focus on Evola later when we get to political traditionalism, I'm going to present this in the way that Evola presents it. This is somewhat different from how Guénon would describe it because Guénon was not interested in politics at all. But Evola refers to this as the hierarchical quadripartition. So there are, there are four kinds of things for Evola. And he, so traditionalists in general have a habit of grouping things that are kind of similar out of, you know, otherwise divergent traditions together and saying that they're all the same thing. So if you're listening to this and you're familiar with any of these subjects and you're thinking, okay, wait a minute, those don't really match up, you're right. But this is how traditionalists analyze religion. So we'll start with the Hindu ages. So Hinduism posits this doctrine of cyclical time where we start in the Satya Yuga or the golden age Right, and the, you know, where, you know, earth is fair and all men glad and wise, and, you know, the Treta Yuga, which is slightly worse, and the Dvapara Yuga, which is yet again slightly worse, and the way in which their a degeneration of the Golden Age varies across different forms of Hinduism. So I'm not going to get into this in great detail, and I'm also not a scholar of Hinduism. So, and then the last age is the Kali Yuga, which you will hear this phrase constantly around traditionalists, which is a time of chaos, disorder, and, and badness. And at the end of these four cycles, there is an apocalypse of some kind, and it starts all the way back over. So for traditionalists, the Satya Yuga is the time in which sort of mankind adheres to the perennial philosophy and is like governed by the perennial philosophy. And as it, as the cycle goes on, the perennial philosophy is like corrupted and 
degenerates until there's no trace of it left in the Kali Yuga, basically. So traditionalists map this, these four ages, well, Evolian traditionalists map these four ages onto the four Vedic castes. This is not, this does not match up with Hinduism particularly well. This is a traditionalist thing, um, as far as I understand. So the, the, four, the four Vedic castes are the Brahmins, who are like priest kings, and then the Kshatriyas, who are the warrior class, Vaishyas, the merchants, and Shudras, who are like manual laborers, sometimes translated as slaves, but it means like, it doesn't mean like you're owned by somebody else, it means you do manual labor. And the, so the traditionalists assign to each, each age, the like, they assign a caste to each age. And then Evola takes a hop over to Greece and matches the Satya Yuga and the Brahmins up with the aristocracy in Plato's Republic. This is, if you remember, the flawless regime ruled by the philosopher kings and then associates Plato's, the democracy, which is kind of a, like a Sparta-like uh, militarist regime with the Kshatriyas and Plato's oligarchy, which is in, in Plato's description has less to do with commerce and more to do with just like land wealth. So like, basically landed gentry. So what we would call aristocracy is what Plato means by oligarchy. But Evola associates that with the Vaishya, the merchant class. And then the final, in the Kali Yuga, you have democracy. We don't like democracy here uh, because that's the rule of the the, the Shudras, the, the manual labor caste, according to Evola's matching of these things onto Plato. And so he considers like the first two, the so the Brahmins, so the, the Satya Yuga and the Treta Yuga, which have have like the characteristics of the Brahmins, the priest kings, and the Ksatriyas, the warriors, respectively. He considers those to be like ages in which the primordial, the, the perennial philosophy is sort of still visible. So he calls those spiritual ages, whereas the Dipara Yuga and the Kali Yuga, governed respectively by the Vaishyas and the Shudras, are purely materialist, according to Evola. Now, all traditionalists believe that we are in the Kali Yuga, but they disagree on what we should do about that, and we'll come back to that in a bit. And they also all agree that the time cycle is inevitable and unstoppable. There will be a cataclysm eventually, and the Satya Yuga will return. So, again, they all believe we're in the Kali Yuga. So what, and they all agree on a weakening of spirituality in favor of material. And they don't mean like, they don't mean Mater like materialism in the like Marxist historical materialism sense. They mean that that the 
civilizations of the Kali Yuga are characterized by an overfocus on the economic dimensions of life versus the spiritual dimensions of life. And the other thing that they all believe is happening is that there is a flattening of distinctions. So Evola, Evola and Ganon both talk about how sort of there are, you know, everybody has whatever level of spiritual attainment is possible to them. And there's like a differentiation of role based on sort of spiritual and metaphysical ability as well as on like social role. And that in the Kali Yuga, all of those distinctions disappeared. Everybody is exactly the same. And they think that this is a terrible state of affairs because the perennial philosophy is like makes distinctions between people on the basis of spiritual roles. So they don't see this primarily as like a, as a matter of economic class or something. It is about sort of what, like where somebody is on this like hierarchy of initiate of like religious initiation. And that, that happens to correlate to class roles they see as secondary. So as far as their attitude towards progress or modernity, they, they do not believe in progress as a concept. There is no progress. There is only this recurring cycle of degeneration away from the perennial philosophy. And the regeneration at the end of the Kali Yuga comes in the form of some sort of sort of indescribable cataclysm. Like none of them know exactly what they're expecting will happen. Obviously in, in you know, Orthodox Hinduism, and so far as that phrase is a phrase that makes sense, it's much like there, there are a variety of doctrines about the four ages, but in general, they, Hindus believe that they're very long, like in the thousands and thousands of years each. But traditionalists do not think that's the case. They believe that they're much shorter and that not only are we in the Kali Yuga, but the Kali Yuga is coming to a close. And that's kind of where we can move over into politics. Okay, let's, uh, let's explore that a bit because you've already mentioned Evola. And I think if I remember Teitelbaum's book, Evola kind of is the biggest philosopher that's kind of shaping what would later become Bannon and to a degree Dugan's sort of viewpoint. But he's kind of, he's still in my view, kind of a mystery. I don't quite understand him. Like I, I think I've heard his name mentioned like with like fascism or associated with fascism or fascist tendencies, but could we dig into Evola a bit for us, but also this idea of political traditionalism? What, is, what does that mean? What is, you know, how does a philosophy that fundamentally rejects modernity or does not want to be concerned with modernity do politics? Like, what, what is, how does that translate to reality? Or how does Evola sort of describe it, you know, when it comes to reality? Okay, so so again, all trads, all traditionalists believe that the only way out of the Kali Yuga is through. But you get kind of two 
factions. The one is the the quietest mystics. It's kind of the first faction. And that was Guénon's original position. So Guénon encouraged like study groups to promote the, he, so he called, he said that he wanted to promote the, the formation of an intellectual elite by which he kind of meant like something slightly metaphysical, right? And he encouraged like study groups and sort of communication between scholars. But he actually specifically warns against the formation of large groups because he th he is afraid that those large groups will be tempted to engage in politics. And like Genel's position is basically like the Kali Yuga will go away on its own. Like, be cool, man. It's fine. Just just relax. It'll go away. Just don't worry about it. Like the next the 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 Satya Yuga must come next is sort of the Genonis position on this. And then the second faction are uh, what I call the Kali Yuga surfers. There's like a there's a meme that goes around on like fascist internet uh, like surf the Kali Yuga, which comes from the title of some Evola essay. But the Kali Yuga surfers are I think they are best characterized in the words of Mike Ma, who is another fascist in this orbit, who is fond of using the slogan, three feet on the gas pedal, that we have to get through the Kali Yuga as fast as possible, and that there is there are concrete actions that human beings can take to hurry it along. So under like under the auspices of the Kali Yuga surfers, there are two factions. There's the metapoliticians. So that's like the cast of characters that Teitelbaum has been writing about. And they do this, they call it metapolitics, which was, that's the coinage of one of the French New Right philosophers. I can't remember at the moment which one, but it's kind of a cultural it's kind of like like they produce traditionalist cultural products. They engage in sort of nonviolent political subversion of one kind or another. And you know, if, if you want to know about the metapoliticians, read Teitelbaum's book, listen to his interview. I study terrorism, so I'm much more interested in the second faction, which is the terrorists. And the terrorists believe that it is their responsibility to accelerate the collapse of the Kali Yuga, like the civilizations of the Kali Yuga, by using violence to create chaos and eventually apocalyptic war. So, and they get all of this from Evola. So, Evola is, so he's, he's an Italian nobleman. He's Baron Julius Evola, and he is, you know, part of this kind of occultist in the interwar period that they're all interested in Eastern philosophy and like grail mythology and stuff like that. He particularly was very interested in Hindu Tantra and Evola's opinions about Hindu Tantra would be, again, a fascinating podcast in their own right, but I simply do not know enough about it to get into it. But, so he's persuaded by sort of Guénon's argument about the perennial philosophy, but he is unsatisfied with the sort of quietest mystic attitude that the Kali Yuga will go away if you don't worry about it. And when Mussolini comes along 
Evola thinks he sees an opportunity because sort of the fascist militarism, like, like quasi-mystical attitude towards war and like kind of the fascist cult of youth and the, you know, the emphasis placed on sort of the the inherent, basically the inherent val value of the experience of warfare seemed to him to represent like a step like back in the time cycle. So he sees like Mussolini and the fascist movement early on as a representation of the values of the the warrior caste, the Kshatriyas, right? So he is in the in the 20s and 30s he puts like all his energy into getting italian fascists kind of on board with the traditionalist religious program it doesn't work mussolini thinks it's weird and he's trying to get in good with the catholic church right so no one takes him up on it in italy for the most part and he sort of he sort of falls out of favor and then during world war ii he gets wind of himmler's sort of project to turn the ss not not just into like a you know a military force but also into this kind of like quasi mystical warrior cast and he like he leaves Italy, he travels to the, to Vavelsburg, which is where the, the SS castle, Himmler's SS castle was. And he kind of tries to attach himself to that. But again, like, there's conflict, they don't get along great. There's a bunch of conflict. Evola is injured in an allied bombing raid. He loses a leg and he goes back to Italy at the end of the war. And his experiences in the war convince him that in like his experience trying to get Mussolini on board with like traditionalist spirituality and then with kind of the failure to turn the SS into this like mystical warrior caste convinces him that in fact, like Genon is right about the Kali Yuga but he's, again, he's still unsatisfied with the quietness mysticism. So instead of advocating sort of fascist politics as a way to slam the brakes on the time cycle, he says, okay, so now what we need to do is we need to go through Kali Yuga as fast as possible. And he doesn't really explain, he never says specifically how it is that you're supposed to do this but it can be inferred from the broader body of his work. And the reason that he didn't say specifically how you were supposed to do this is that in post-war Italy, his writings were very popular with the sort of revolutionary fascist factions that got up to a lot of terrorist activity during the years of lead. And he was trying to stay out of trouble by not being too terribly specific about what it was that he wanted you to do. So I'm gonna go 
back a little bit to the to the ideology because Evola's version is slightly different from the like kind of the traditionalism 101 and the couple of ways in which it's different are quite important to how like his version of traditionalism evolves into this like militant current so he so he defines the perennial philosophy insofar as he defines it most of these writers were kind of aggravatingly vague about it which is consistent with the idea that we kind of don't really fully know what it is because of the degeneration in the Kali Yuga, but it's still like frustrating as a reader of philosophy. So according to Evola, the perennial philosophy is a non-human, eternal, super historical realm of unchanging spirituality from which of course modern society has degenerated. And he he says that this is based on an underivable principle of being with a capital B, which manifests as the, he calls it the Newman, which is like a, it's a Latin word for a sort of supernatural force, not, not a, not a God or a spirit, like something sort of non-personal. And Evola defines that as a an immutable force imposing form and quality on lower matter in an endless chain of being in which every lower order is an analogy to what is higher. So he, if you imagine, the, the best way to think about this is like sort of a down, like a, like a downward, like fractal version of those four, those four kinds of things, Brahmins, Ketatrias. And for Evola, he assigns sort of qualities to those as well. So like for him, like the Brahmin represents the mind and the spiritual principle, or these things are identical, really, that represents, they are the same, they are the same like metaphysical entity. The Kshatriya is like un- unrestrained will. The Vaishas represent like orga organic economy, which he would describe sort of in the way that you might describe like natural growth, like plants or something that produces, you know, that, that like that produce fruit, but are kind of un, but do so by nature rather than by craft, if that makes sense. And then he identifies the Shudras, the, the laborer class with like vital functions and the body and he will if like when you if you read his books like these four things are endlessly reflected so and then he so as far as political organization goes he again is not incredibly specific about what the political organization of the of society in the golden age looks like but he says he he says that he would claim that law is also un, underivable it's like a it's an emanation from the newman it's not something that humans have anything to do with really and that the state in the 
the golden age, the Sacha Yuga, is an organic apparition of the world above. So again, those four things reflected endlessly. And in Evola's conception, because he maps this onto politics very clearly in a way that like Ganon doesn't really have any interest in. So for Evola, each stage of the time cycle is governed by the values of the caste that predominates it. And he says that the like the the caste the caste that govern the preceding cycle it collapses into the next one. The I think Ben talked about this a little bit, but so the Brahmins when the Brahmins are in charge in the Satya Yuga, it's governed by non-human spirituality. And then when the Kshatriya, the warrior class, is ruling, like the governing principle of the society is martial honor. And like the king might still formally be a priest, but it's almost like it's just like a costume that he's wearing, like what he's really motivated by, and like the the spiritual principle of the society is martial honor, right? And then the Vaishas, the govern the the society is governed by the principle of economic production. And then so like You know, he when he talks about the the society governed by the Vaishas, he he sees that as like what we would call like bourgeois capitalist democracy, but also kind of into the like back into the 16th century. But this is like a very short span of time that he's imagining. So they they also like each get shorter every time in Evola's conception. So the you know the Vaishas govern for about a couple hundred years and then after you know the beginning of the 19th century after like world war one basically the shudras the the laborer class are in are in charge and then you know to him the other three castes no longer exist everything's been flattened into the laborer class and he says that this unleashes elemental subhuman and infernal forces so if you have in the Kali Yuga, this, the governing spiritual principle is, like, demonic, or he he sometimes identifies it with, like, chthonic deities from the global south. He's also incredibly racist, so we can talk about that in a little more detail later, but he... So, he considers all... all modern political systems to be prima facie illegitimate. So he looks at the Cold War, right, and he he sees like a war of one form of like rule by the mass and another form of rule by the mass but he does see like the conflict as potentially like generative of the end of the Kali Yuga. And what, so what he advocates for, he uses a Greek word for it. He, he calls it apolitea, which is like the, like apolitical and, you know, Attic Greek, but that's not, doesn't mean that the way that we would mean, mean it colloquially. He means like not just a disinterest in politics, but active rejection of all modern political systems. 
So sometimes a lot of these days you'll see militant, militant neo-fascists, traditionalist groups like the base or Adam Boffin or any of these guys, they will use the slogan, there is no political solution. And that is a reference to Evola's views on the illegitimacy of all modern political systems. So, and again, he offers, he doesn't offer a lot of practical suggestions. His, the way he generally approaches this is that he will describe some aspect of the world of tradition and then leave you to draw your own conclusions about what you might do about that. So he, he calls, he calls what he, he, he describes this as riding the tiger and he, in the, in the book of the same name. And what he says is when a cycle of civilization is reaching its end, it's difficult to achieve anything by resisting it and by directly opposing the forces in motion. The essential thing is not to let oneself be impressed by the omnipotence and apparent triumph of the forces of the epoch. These forces devoid of any connection with a higher principle are on a short chain. Thus, the principle to follow could be that of letting the forces and processes of this epoch take their own course while keeping oneself firm and ready to intervene when the tiger, which cannot leap on the person riding it, is tired of running. So, he, he does not prescribe inaction in the way that Genon does. And he leaves the exact nature of this intervention when the tiger is tired, sort of as an exercise for the reader. But he brings up a couple of things that to someone who is either a student of these kinds of occultist movements or of, you know, often of sort of early modern European history, you can kind of read into it. So in Handbook for Right-Wing Youth, which is kind of like a, a compilation of essays, right? In, hang on. In an essay about kind of youth, youth militancy in, in the 60s, he says, he's, he's describing like, sort of the, the chaos, like the chaos and violence of like the beat poets, right? And he breaks off in the middle of this and he says, it's worth mentioning that the world of tradition was familiar with the so-called left-hand path, which includes breaking the law, destruction, and the orgiastic experience in various forms, yet starting from a positive, sacred, and sacrificial orientation that is directed upwards towards the transcendence of all limits. This is the opposite of the pursuit of violent sensations, merely because one is internally shattered and unstable. It conveys the idea of celebrating in the darkness and gloom that which in a different context might have constituted a rite of transfiguration. So, he leaves open there the possibility, right, that you might do some sort of violence in a way consistent with 
the values of the world of tradition without being extremely specific about what he wants. But later in the same book, actually earlier in the same book, he mentions, he also mentions this thing called the Holy Femme. And this is kind of, this is a real like Reformation era Germany deep cut. So, but it's, it's, and it's a single line, but it's also incredibly important uh, to understanding how sort of Evola is used in the justification of uh, terrorism. So he says, leaving aside the motives of certain beats, which is to say the desire to carry out violent actions simply for the thrill they gave, such activism seems quite pointless, even as a means to release some energy. He's talking about like soccer hooliganism. Certainly, if it were possible to set up a sort of holy fema today so as to keep the main culprits of contemporary subversion in a constant state of physical insecurity, it would be an excellent thing. But this is not something which the youth can organize, and besides, the defense system of contemporary society is too well built for such initiatives not to be quashed from the start. So the holy fema were these... They're best, they're like best described as like vigilante courts in Germany in the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance. And they were, I, I don't know like a whole, I don't know a whole lot about the precise historical circumstances of this, but the way that followers of Evola talk about them is as these like groups sort of enforcing the primacy of the the empire against the church and the empire is preferable to the church because it sort of partakes in the militant spirituality of the ancient world right in Evola's conception but and what they would do is that they would like assemble in secret, pass sentence on someone, and then assassinate them. I mean, they were like pro-Holy Roman Empire terrorist groups, basically. And in sort of dark places in the internet where neo-fascists congregate and plot terrorist attacks, you will see uh, a lot of, you'll see a lot of writings about this, the Holy Fema from some, from some interwar German historians or cultists. I've seen, a, I've seen more modern stuff a couple of times, but all of that is a callback to that one like line in uh, Handbook for Right-Wing Youth. And the other one this is this is the same this is the same book he says that he's t he's talking about sort of how a group of traditionalists like political traditionalists might sort of develop themselves through the challenge of surfing the Kali Yuga right and he says that, you know, first they have to study the kind of the perennial philosophy to like reinforce their total rejection of like modern political organization, right? 
and then they kind of have to learn to live those out in practice. And then he says, they could leave open the question of the if and when of the third phase in which with the enduring of the original tension, that's the original tension between like the modern world and tradition, one may attempt certain actions that are deconditioning with respect to human limits. Imponderable factors come into play here and the only sensible aim is to, to pursue is an adequate preparation. And, you know, it's not completely clear what he's talking about there. And I will be the first person to admit that that could have a number of interpretations. But one of the ways that it is regularly interpreted by militant traditionalists now is that he is proposing that they engage in various forms of violence to sort of desensitize themselves to the destruction that will be necessary to end the Kali Yuga. Right. And all of that with the aim of the creation of like this, what he calls a heroic elite that can strike when the tiger is tired. Although he doesn't really tell you how you know when the tiger is tired. And the result, you know, again, there were in, in Italy during the years of lead, which Ben talked about a little bit, there were a number of, a number of neo-fascist terrorist groups that drew primarily on Evola as their ideological inspiration and they carried out all kinds of all kinds of mayhem train bombings they off, they also often got into like gunfights in the street with militant communists all with this particular book in fact which was written for the with the essays in here were written for this like the youth wing of the MSI which was the neo-fascist party with the direct inspiration of Evola's writings. So, oh, I'm sorry. I kind of want to see, so how, how do we translate Evola's writings to contemporary times? Because you've kind of already touched on the base, pardon the pronunciation, Adam Waffen. So how, how do you take something from the beginning of the 20th century and I'm, it, it, you've almost described it almost as like a proto-fascist ideology. How does that sort of translate into our contemporary times, but also into sort of the terrorism and the justification for terrorism? Well, so it's actually a post-fascist ideology. All of the, all of that that I just read you was written after the war. And in the sort of in Italy, you know, there was obviously there was still conflict with communist militants, but in Europe, you know, with the the victory, although you know it may have seemed temporary at the time of like capitalist democracy, and then the Soviet Union on the other side, which to Evola was just they were both the same side. So it is actually a, I mean, you can, you can think of Evola's writing as like the, as like one reaction, one current of fascist to defeat in World War II and sort of a reimagining of sort of that, like the cult of the hero under a sort of, when you are when you are out of power 
and I mean, the, the, in a certain sense, it's kind of a pessimistic version of fascism in that they don't think that they can, they don't think they can win in a stand-up fight with capitalist democracy. But they believe, because they believe that the, that the, like the, the, the civilizations of the Kali Yuga are inherently unstable, like metaphysically unstable. They have no create, they have no communication with the organizing like principle of the universe and they will fall apart. That like even in defeat, it allows them kind of to believe that their victory is inevitable if they can just sort of set everything on fire. So this is why you see a lot of the sort of the neo-fascist terrorist groups that have been emerging in the last couple of years. They are, I mean, they're universally traditionalists. The neo-fascists who are not traditionalists are not really doing the terrorism on an organized basis. And that's because the neo-fascists who are not traditionalists may believe, they, they may believe any number of things about like the, the practical path to victory. I mean, some of them think that they can sort of, they can do it through existing political structures, that they can like capture a state and some of them think that they can, they could like have an insurrection and take over a state. And those groups actually do not tend to gravitate as quickly towards terrorism as the traditionalist groups that believe that the only path to victory is apocalypse. So then a theme that came out in title bombs book and i kind of want to i want you to kind of dig deeper for us is the issue or problem of white supremacy because in the book it almost seems like you couldn't when it came to the american like american traditionalism you couldn't really separate out white supremacy or white white nationalism however defined from it but then when you would speak to people like Bannon, he would just quickly say, no, 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 it's not, it's not a white supremacist movement. It's not a white nationalist movement. It's something else. But, you know, when, when you hear like groups like Adam Waffen or the base, these are, if I understand them correctly, please correct me. These are explicitly Nazi groups. These are explicitly, you know, you know, whites and a certain conception of being white. So, in that sense, to come back to my question, like how much, how much of traditionalism capital T is either taken up by white supremacists or is actually advocating for white supremacy or, you know, yeah. Okay. So I can answer this question, but do I have a time limit? Because we have to go through the traditionalists view about war first. 
And I know that seems really weird, but <laughs> that's the path there. I don't, it'll make sense. Well, it won't make sense when I get to the end of it, but you'll understand. Yeah. I mean, yeah, go ahead. I mean, just, yeah. <laughs> okay. So the other book that is super important, like, I don't know. Everybody talks about revolt against the modern world and like, sure, it's important, but you need to read the metaphysics of war. If you don't read the metaphysics of war, you don't understand Evola. But this was, so metaphysics of war was kind of, it's the product of ideas that Evola developed in the interwar period, but the, the book as it stands now it was subject to a lot of like post-war revisions. So he, like his basic argument is that in the world of tradition, capital W, capital T, this is the fundamental principle underlying all justifications of war from the point of view of human personality is heroism. And holy war and the path of God are interchangeable terms. So, in the world of tradition. War is not politics carried on by other means. It's actually like an ascetic discipline, according to Evola, which is, it's not exactly unique to him. I mean, you could find like the association of it with explicitly mystical subjects is kind of a particularly Evolian idea, but he's to a certain extent pulling from Ernst Junger, which he finally acknowledges at the end of the book. But early, early Junger, not after the, the Anarch and all the strange developments post-war. But so he, he says that sort of war now is subject to one of two of Guénon's like sort of spiritual pathologies, either he says it's activity for its own sake, or it has like no, and it has like no sort of aspect of self-knowledge to it, right? Because Guénon and Evola both consider like action and contemplation to be two like inextricable sort of parts of life as a traditional, in, in, well, in the world of tradition, right? So, you know, in, in keeping with the sort of esoteric and exoteric dimensions of other religious activities, he says that there, you know, there is the external enemy, who's the enemy, and there is the internal enemy, this, which is the animal thirst for life, and that both of these are defeated by war. And this is, I mean, it's basically derived from like a misunderstanding of the lesser and greater jihad, right? He talks about, he talks about that quite a bit, and it's like, clear that he hasn't like he hasn't really read sort of any he's not read a Salafi scholar it doesn't really understand what he's talking about it's fascinating but his other main source text here is the Bhagavad Gita which is a Hindu epic there's this guy there's a this prince Arjuna is going out to fight a battle against like his city's enemies but he like doesn't, he's like distressed by the prospect of this battle and like Krishna comes down to him and like 
kind of gives him a pep talk. And he's like, because, so Arjuna is worried that like his, like that his cause is insufficiently just or whatever. And Krishna says to him, if like you are, like you are committing a sin if you go into this with a, a sort of like a divided will. So you either have to do it or not. And Evola interprets this as uh, Krishna telling Arjuna that like the action of going into battle is valuable for its own sake, which is a possible reading of the Bhagavad Gita, but people, most people don't read it like that. So he, so Evola also says that in the, in the world of tradition, the, the religious particularities involved in this are meaningless, that like there is an inherent sacred value of war. So he, he, in this context, he's like talking about the crusades, right? And he claims that like both sides of the crusades viewed the conflict as like, sacred in its own right, like divorced from sort of like defeat or victory. It was like it was the fighting that was important and had its own spiritual value, which is, I mean, yeah, that's not quite how either Catholic or uh, Sunni doctrine treats this, but that's how Evola reads the Crusades. And he describes that this, like, both sides in the Crusades are, like, united in action and, like, this sense of solidarity where they feel, like, closer to each other than to, like, non, like, the non-combatants, right? And he, like, posits, like, death in battle as a religious sacrifice, which he says, even if you survive, it, like, like internally in the combatants, in the world of tradition, it kills like the illusion of sort of corporeal existence, that like your existence is metaphysical and non-corporeal. And battle will, if you are still like weirdly persuaded that your body is the important thing here, like battle will destroy that illusion is in, if practiced in accordance with the perennial philosophy, according to Evola. And, so victory is a metaphysical value. So victory might mean like a, like it might mean sort of exoteric, like victor, victory over the external enemy. But victory also might mean the defeat of the internal enemy, even if like your city, state, or whatever political unit we have in the world of tradition is defeated. And this is where we get to what Evola thinks about race, because this is actually the book where he talks about race the most. He kind of talks about it. He talks about it a little bit in uh, Revolt Against the Modern World, but like not in a way that's really intelligible, at least as far as I ever found it. So what he says, so what Evola kind of, Again, there are four kinds of things, right? So race, is, race also sort of falls under those four kinds of things. And he kind of describes race as a, like an organic metaphysical unity 
in a way that's like quite common with these sort of the with the like racist fascist philosophers right but he says that there are like that this is sort of closely and inextricably connected with war so he, when he's when he's like concerned about the extinction of a race he says that like a race can become extinct spiritually if it degenerates from like the primordial philosophy even though it still exists like there are members of that race running around on the ground right um and that in the same way that war creates like enlightenment in the individual basically it does the same things for races it like helps them maintain their metaphysical coherence so he says that like he he describes like two practical tasks of what he calls racism which he means like he doesn't necessarily mean he means like preference for your own group whatever that group is when he says racism he says passive defense or it's like shelter from outside influence like and then active resistance which he says is fighting degeneracy from within so both the resistance of outside influences and the maintenance of like the the organic golden age unity under the priest king right and he draws three conclusions from this which is that each race has its he says each race has its own appropriate relate reaction to a relationship to war and he doesn't really elaborate on that right and that war will create a healthy race and that it's necessary for everybody to like fight each other basically for the development in each race of like the ascetic like priest king war cult thing and the strange thing about this is that like he thinks that sort of the indo-european races so like europeans but also iranians and like some indian ethnic groups are like further along on this path than everybody else or that other races have degenerated like further than them but he but he thinks that he does appear to believe that all races can kind of go through this process because he mentions like he actually holds up the aztecs as a like an example of a racial group he uh, he which is a choice that he makes with like a healthy relationship to war which if you know anything about aztec military practices is alarming so he so like he thinks that this bears some relationship to biology but that it's like primarily a metaphysical thing again so he like he is a racist but he's a very strange racist and he is in so he would argue for sort of separatism 
and hierarchy, but the hierarchy is not so much about biology as it is about like relationship to the practices of the world of tradition. So he sees like the race as like a as another like organic unit like the like the state or the caste. And he makes a differentiation in by race on more on types of religion than on like appearance. So he thinks that degenerate like races that he thinks are degenerate are races that subscribe to what he calls totemic religions, so like animism basically versus races that are in touch with like the the the, the Newman. So like he does think that like purity of blood is necessary for each race, but like what makes a race degenerate or not is not biology, but like the kind of religion that that race subscribes to. Like if it's a, again, if it's like an animist religion, he thinks that's like degenerate. So, and then he also thinks that sort of the, he, you know, as, because there are four kinds of things. He also ascribes like the caste character to war. So societies governed by the Kshetrias are gonna be sort of honor seeking rather than sort of metaphysical and ascetic about it. Uh, the Vaishas look for kind of like citizen soldiers. And he doesn't really get into what the, what the like, how the Shudra caste, like society corresponding to the Shudra caste like approaches war because he thinks we, he hasn't seen it yet. So he doesn't know what it looks like, but, so when, and he, he actually, he offers examples in from like, he offers 20th century examples of all of these things where he sort of, when he's talking about the Vaishas, he's like pointing at how sort of before World War I, like France, you know, democratic France, it's like simultaneously criticizes war but demands like sacrifice from the like, citizen soldiers and he thinks that that's sort of hypocritical and degenerate and then he says like he describes what he calls bolshevik war as war that relies on human material in a literal sense and he describes it as like subpersonal heroism where like you that's like, I get, he his, 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 like, sees it as like sacrifice without transcendence. It's because of like the purely materialistic ideology, right? And then he says that the closest thing he's ever, like he says the closest existing thing to the attitude towards war under the Brahmins is Imperial Japan because of like what he calls the unity of the religious and imperial idea. And he like analogizes the kamikaze to the like Roman like practice of occasionally like winning winning really important battles through suicide missions. And he says that he he like describes that as certainty of internal existence as distinct from afterlife. And then like the indis and that like the the way that war is practiced by the Japanese like acknowledges the indestructibility of that which has no beginning. So 
again, so so like yes, he so Evola is interested in race, and he but it's not in it's not in a it's specifically in the context of the spiritual value of warfare. And some of these, some of these neo-Nazi groups do see it the same way. So the, the race war, you know, like they want the race war, but the purpose of the race war is racial regeneration. And like victory in the exoteric sense is not certain. So like you you actually even like this was not foreign to the Nazis either because Hitler's like at the at, like as the allies were closing in on Berlin like Hitler was ranting about how like the Germans had like basically like the Germans had let him down and the had like shown that they weren't really this like the master race because they were defeated by the Slavs and now they all deserve to die. So it's this like sense of like racial competition and they are racist in that sense. But like many of the like white nationalists in the strict sense of like people who want a white separatist state would not agree with like the traditionalist fascist view of race. But you are right. It is, it is like, inex it, it is inextricable from Evola's philosophy. And again, I, from, from the outside, I can't tell what Steve Bannon and the metapoliticians think about that. I don't, I don't interview them directly because I've made too many enemies in the neo-fascist terrorist milieu to be interviewing anybody directly. So Bannon may simply choose to disregard the metaphysics of war. I mean, maybe he has like whether or not he has thoughts about it, I really can't say. I would love to find out. The metaphysics of war is something that is is being read and thought about within these neo-fascist, this neo-fascist terrorist milieu that you've kind of alluded to, right? It's not something. It's it's something that's being pondered about and analyzed and picked apart. Correct. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'll see, um, I mean, you'll see it. It's in all of their, like, you know, you're, you're going through their Telegram channel and they've posted a link to like their archive of PDFs. It's always there, invariably. You'll see like memes about the Kshatriyas or the, like the terrorists will like make memes about their like, about like being the Kshatriyas so that like they don't think that they're going to be the rulers they're just the like the foot soldiers right and you'll see I mean you'll see they use they use quotations from it a lot and they also will kind of they'll allude to the concepts through imagery as well it's like it's, it's pervasive but again like if you hadn't read 
like if, if like if you were a complete outsider and when i came to this uh, i was not a complete outsider i read evola in undergrad because i was trying to understand what on earth uh, the umberto echo novel foucault's pendulum is all about but so when i came to this like looking at these terrorist networks i had already read this book so i knew when i saw like the content in a bunch of these memes that this was a like that they were talking about evola but and but it has been missed because and there's just like such a volume of stuff that if you don't know it's a really difficult one to find out because it was only like also this book was only recently i think it was only recently released in english i don't remember i think it was first released in english in yeah it was first released in english in 2007 and it was you know in in kind of the in the neo-fascist milieu you know, it was sort of passed around in trans like fragments of it in translation before but it was not easy to get a hold of and that has changed again thanks to arctos who are probably more responsible for the wave of neo-fascist terrorism sort of in a in a cosmic sense than they get credit for It's kind of interesting to me because Arctos is like, as you mentioned, is is a big publisher, is is a publisher of a lot of Evola's work. And you mentioned that it's only been recently translated to English, like fully. Is that right? Yeah. So this is something I, I have not had the time. I, since I was, so I was studying at American University. I finished my master's degree in August. My research is on skull mask Nazis. So like Adam Boffin and those guys, right? Now, and I am actually really interested in the publishers in this world. So one of them is like Arctos and there's been a lot of good work on Arctos. There's like what, there's Teitelbaum's work. There's a number of journalists in the Nordic countries who have done a bunch of work on Arctos and the people behind it. But there's another publisher who used to be the only publisher of Evola's works in English, basically at all. It's called Inner Traditions. And it is based in, it is based in Rochester, Vermont. And the guy that owns it is, he's a Sabra, so he's like a, a native born Israeli, right? Who, like moved to the U.S. and became a traditionalist, which is fascinating because traditionalism is sort of like propositionally anti-Semitic, <laughs> and for a long time, like that was the only publishing house publishing Evola in English. So there was right. So they published right. They still publish Ride the Tiger. I think if I pick my device up and walk over to my bookshelf. They also publish Revolt Against the Modern World and The Mystery of the Grail. But again, for a long time, they were the only ones. And then when Arctos popped up, Arctos also started publishing Evola in English formally. And this is one of those places where sort of the the meta politicians 
and the terrorists are almost like symbiotic, right? Because the terrorists can't do, the, like the terrorists sort of, they can't do without the, the metapoliticians because they need, otherwise these texts are inaccessible. And in that sense, the, the sort of resurgence of Evolian traditionalist terrorism is a direct consequence of the, like, the renewed, like, systematic availability of Evola's work. That's, that's just kind of blowing my mind because, like, on one hand, the material is, like, it's available, and on the other hand, like, it has to be distributed, and this one company, Arctos, is just doing all the work, but at, at the same time, like, when we think about terrorist groups, I mean, like we get, I, I get that they're kind of reading it and sort of discussing it, but like, is it, I mean, is it being held up as, is Evelyn's work being held up as a, as a sort of a radicalizing cause, or is it just another, you know, piece of literature within the bibliography, so to speak, that it's, it's, it's within a, a milieu of resources and sources as opposed to being the one author or one book that they're holding up and saying, this is, this is it. This is our guiding sort of thoughts. This is what's guiding our thoughts to violence. So they, it really depends on what kinds of groups you're looking at. So in the sort of broader far right milieu, Ebola is one of a host of, sources that people will draw on. I mean, like, all kinds of people in the far right are reading Evola, but it's not necessarily sort of their primary ideological inspiration. The terrorists, the terrorist groups, like the, the I will just call, from now on, I'm going to call them the skull mask Nazis. They're the ones that wear the half-faced black and white skull masks. So those groups, they will, I mean, they will distribute reading lists. I can pull up one of those. But they're, Evola is one of sort of the key, he's one of the key sources, but he's not the only one. I mean, they're, they're, there are plenty of them. So this is the, this is an eco-fascism reading list where they also draw on, you know, this has got Ebola on it, but it's also got this guy, Jortan Jenks, who's like a, a fascist ecologist. It has the industrial society and its future. It has Penti Linkola. So there's whatever sort of flavor of traditionalist, you know, sort of whatever flavor of fascism a particular fascist terrorist group subscribes to, there's going to be kind of a stew, but Evola is always a dominant flavor in that stew, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So, like, 
so I, I know I know this is kind of weird, but like when when these groups are going out and recruiting the as you describe them the skull mask Nazis, how much does how much does this like Evola play into recruitment? You mentioned memes. You mentioned sort of you know please correct me if I'm wrong, but ride the tiger memes, which kind of now I'm perversely interested in <laughs> because it's like okay, but how much like it. Is the introduction to Evola and this sort of the intellectual part of it, is that, does that factor into recruitment or is that something that comes very much later that comes at sort of more indoctrination stages and more a deeper sort of association within that group? So I would say Evola is usually kind of like advanced reading. That's not typically how they would radicalize people. The memes actually, the memes that draw on concepts from Evola have sort of broad currency in the far right. So like Surf the Kali Yuga memes are a dime a dozen. Those like Ride the Tiger memes also a dime a dozen, even like well outside the the terrorist milieu. And so what that does mean though is that once someone sort of is more committed and starts doing a lot of detailed reading, they're already sort of familiar with some of these concepts. But I've just pulled up another couple of reading lists. So there's one that I'm looking at one that I think I found this on the base's Telegram channel, like way back before they got nuked. So there's like, there's this book Next Leap, which is written by Alexander Slavros, who was the guy who founded Iron March, which was a which was this web forum where all of these skull mask groups were incubated, basically. Like everybody, not everybody in the neo-fascist subculture was on Iron March, but everybody who was like started a skull mask terrorist group. So it's got like Slav Rose's book, Next to Leap. It's got Mein Kampf. It's got The Lightning in the Sun by Savitri Devi, which Ben mentioned. And then it's got a bunch of other, like an odd grouping of things. So under like eco-fascism, it's got Pentelinkola again, but then another Savitri Devi book about vegetarianism, right? Under like the concept of like the, the like warrior initiation, there's a book about Kurt Eggers, who was an SS officer who wrote some poems. Um, there's Siege by James Mason. There's the Metaphysics of War, the Bhagavad Gita. And then there's also, so there's Evola's Ride the Tiger, and there's Valgang and Eumisville, which are both by Ernst Junger. And this, so this is, this is just like one of many, like, sort of like, Ideolo- like ideological training materials that they'll put out on their on their feeds. And I also have one that's like the like the definitive like Julius Evola reading guide for the fascist militant, which that one's fascinating because they think they have them start with the mystery of the grail. Which I mean that's uh that's a rabbit hole we really don't have time for. And, but the mandatory texts are like the mystery of the grail, metaphysics of war, revolt against the modern world, ride the tiger and men among the ruins. So 
they're they're sort of encouraging these as uh, sort of further reading for somebody who's like somebody who's interested in fascist militancy but may not be like completely committed like this is one of the things that they will give you in the same way that like i don't know you might encourage a like a like a jihadist group might encourage somebody to read milestones by Syed Qutb so something that i've kind of struggled with to understand and maybe you can help me which is within sort of the far right milieu the ultra right milieu we have traditionalism but if if i'm understanding it correctly you also have this accelerationist bent within the far right and something that i was kind of while reading ben's book kind of struggling to understand or trying to figure out was the interplay between traditionalists and ex- and accelerationists because it almost seems like if you want to end the Kali Yuga and transition into a golden age, you kind of have to, things have to end, right? That doesn't necessarily mean a zero point, but things have to kind of end, you know, violently or upheaval or, you know, however described. And I just, I just couldn't like stop thinking about like, what is, what are the sort of interactions or feuds or interplays between the traditionalist right and the accelerationist right. The accelerationist right is traditionalist. Okay, so I mean, could you? So, so this is this is a like recurring cause of confusion. Ben mentioned this briefly, where like Savitri Devi talks about like pushing the Kali Yuga, right? She literally uses the word accelerate. So. When fascists say accelerationism, they are not talking about Nick Land. It's got nothing to do with Nick Land. It's, it comes from Evelyn Savitri Devi. And I mean, like that absolutely execrable Vox piece about Nick Land has done like an unbelievable disservice to those of us who actually like watch the far right. Because there is a lot of, like, there, Nick Land definitely belongs in, like, the broader alt-right milieu, but, like, Land in accelerationism, like, explicitly does not posit an end. It's like, you, you gotta go fast because technological, like, technological progress is, like, the determining, is, like, the determining factor in human civilization, and like attempting to like stand in its path is kind of like holding us back from realizing our full potential would be the like the Landian uh, like transhumanist accelerationist position and they are often sort of allied with the parts of the far right because of their views about both about like governance structures like land used to or now I don't know what land is up to right now, but he used to be sort of in favor of kind of like an AI dictatorship. So in the sense that they tend to be opposed to like the regulatory structures and sort of political constraints imposed by capitalist democracy, they have a commonality, but like traditionalism 
and landing and acceleration are as far apart from each other as you could possibly go. Because actually like landing acceleration is a bears like considerable resemblance to Italian futurism, which was a major influence on Mussolini and like the Italian fascist movement, but not, it like did not have a mystical dimension. I'm sorry. And then can you maybe explore for us what does it mean for the end? Because like, I mean, is the end conceptualized within the traditionalist thinking as a violent end? Is the transition from Kali Yuga to Golden Age again, is is that by default destructive, violent, like absolute apocalypse? What is that end and that sort of transition conceptualized as then? So, okay. Evola thinks that it is necessarily violent because again, like it's not the world of tradition without the spiritual value of war, which is sort of like rediscovered in the course of this cataclysm. And then there's like, after whatever happens is over, there's like the heroic elite that like restarts the whole cycle again. But he doesn't exactly describe what he thinks is going to happen. He just thinks that some kind of violent cataclysm will occur. It's so like at the end of Metaphysics of War, hang on. He, like at the end of Metaphysics of War in the last chapter, he suggests that like a nuclear war might do it because he's writing in during the Cold War. But he doesn't, he's not extremely specific. And th this is kind of a, this is often a feature of apocalyptic movements is that they get fuzzy on the details the closer you get to the eschaton. So he doesn't exactly, at no point does he offer prescriptions for setting up the, the society that will be there at the beginning of the, the new Satya Yuga. He just says that like, this will, basically that like this will happen, it will sort itself out because that's how the world works. Which is frustrating, but besides the fact that he thinks that violence is metaphysically necessary, as well as just like sort of a inevitable like material condition of the complete destruction of civilization as we know it. Yeah, he's not specific. So then I guess in modern times, this is this not this lack of specificity has been translated into like a race war or inciting a race war or maybe maybe we should step back and say that how do modern groups kind of interpret this need for violence and you know violence as creating a transitory state 
Well, they're, I mean, they're, they don't all agree. So some of them want, like, they'll be happy with anything sufficiently apocalyptic. They basically think that they will come out on, even if they don't think that they personally or like their particular faction will come out on top, they think that like the world of tradition will come out on top. And that most of them don't expect to survive it. They think that like, again, like their, their death, like Evola talks about how like the Supreme God views like death in battle as an appropriate sacrifice, right? So they, or the Newman or his exact sort of pantheon or monotheon is really unclear. He's not very specific about that, but he, but that like whatever the, like the spiritual forces, like except like prefer death in battle as a sacrifice. So they, the, so the terrorists will tend to see themselves as like that sacrifice that like meets the metaphysical conditions for the coming of the new golden age. And again, whether they think that their particular faction will come out on top, they think that the world of tradition will come out on top. Now, again, it, it, it varies heavily based on like particular like traditional militant traditionalist group, what they think what they think this like cataclysm is going to look like. I mean, a lot of them think that it's like that it could be catalyzed by the collapse of the US which is why they're always like rooting for more violence but they would also i mean they would think as well that they I mean, they would they would share with evela the view that like a nuclear exchange between the US and China or Russia might also do it they're not super picky they just believe that it's their job to increase the like baseline level of chaos because the Kali Yuga can only take so much chaos. That's really interesting. <laughs> so I think we've kind of, we've touched on everything that I wanted to touch on and per tradition. So uh, before we go, <laughs> per, I accidentally made a joke. <laughs> Whoops. Um, <laughs> So basically, we asked the guests to leave us something to think about. So either for, you know, either something new to research or something unique and provocative to think about. But before we leave for today, leave us, leave us with a thought or an idea. Well, I, this is something I don't know very much about and that I think would be kind of interesting. There are like the quietest mystic faction of traditionalism is around and going strong. And a lot of them actually don't really like, they're all against the terrorists. And, you know, many of the metapoliticians are also against the terrorists. Right. So many of the metapoliticians think that that's inappropriate, which is sort of, again, based on like the experience of the Italians. So I know what the terrorists think of the metapoliticians. They mostly think that they're like weak and mealy mouth and they don't really mean it. I know what the, the metapoliticians, with the exception of Dugan, 
tend to pretty reliably condemn terrorism. I don't know what the quietest mystics think about the metapoliticians. So it would be really interesting to find out if anyone is interested in traditionalism, what they, like what the intra-traditionalist beefs are amongst the genuinely apolitical traditionalists. The only, the only thing I've, I've actually seen about this personally, because it's just not my, there are too many terrorists to keep up with. I can't deal with the quietest mystics as well, but I did find one essay, a series of essays by this Serbian guy, I can't remember his name right now, but he's of the quietest mystic, sort of the Ganon style of traditionalism. And he wrote, he wrote this bizarre screed about Dugan. And so he thinks that like Dugan is, I mean like he thinks that Dugan is sinister and like a menace to true traditionalism. I can't remember his name, but that's the only thing that, that, that I've come across. That would be really interesting if you study little subcultures or like the history of like ideologies or anything like that. I think that would be really fascinating. That's awesome. So I just want to thank my guest Upchurch. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, this was fun. I will talk about traditionalists until I fall over dead, most likely. So I love an opportunity to monologue at an unsuspecting new friend about this very weird political rabbit hole. And I hope you have an excellent evening. Thank you.